We're continuing our study this morning on the topic or the theme of what makes Christ so special. Up until this point in our series, we have been dealing with many of the phrases in this section in in the book of Hebrews that have to do with the person of Christ and specifically those aspects of Christ's person that reflect his deity. You begin in verse 2 by saying that God has spoken in these last days to us by his Son. And so we spent some time dealing with Christ as the Son of God. And then it goes on to say, Whom he hath appointed heir of all things, the one who disposes all things and who is over all things. That is the part of the covenant made between the Father and the Son. And we spent some time dealing with that. And then we considered the phrase, by whom, he, by whom also he made the worlds. The very creation of the worlds in which we live uh, is, uh, is attributed to the second person of the Trinity, the Lord Jesus Christ. And then last week, or the, in the week before, we considered verse 3, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power. Each one of these phrases uh, showing the power of the person of Jesus Christ. Many of these things attributed to Jehovah in the Old Testament, clearly being applied to Jesus Christ in this passage. But this morning, we come to finish this verse in verse 3. I I trust we'll finish. We may actually have to uh, consider part of this tonight um, in dealing with this verse. And part of the reason why I wanted to do this study was because this section always posed more consideration and more examination than ever I could give it in one message. And so you've heard me say that part of the reason why I wanted to break this up into a series was because each one of these phrases demands consideration. And having already done that and considering each one of these phrases in a message by itself, as it were, I still feel that in many ways I'm hardly scratching the surface of of these phrases especially coming to the section of this verse, verse 3, that we're considering today. Because while the other phrases and sections of these verses deal with the person of the Lord, and there have been heresies and attacks that have been waged against the person of Christ, no doubt. Every one of the attacks that has been brought against his person was actually brought against the person of Christ long ago. Every, any, any doctrine that could be attacked concerning Christ's person was already found in the church as early as the 300s. And so these attacks, no doubt, have been examined by the church and have been refuted. But most of the, da- the, the damaging attacks that you'll find concerning the person and the work of Jesus Christ are levied by the devil against the second of those two, which is the work of Christ. 
the, the ground that we need to hold and the ground upon which we stand this morning is the blood and merits of Jesus Christ. And there is an ongoing onslaught brought by the devil from multiple fronts in our day, attacking the work of Jesus Christ. Most of the heresies and most of the attacks against Christ that we will fight today are those attacks that come against his work. And the work of Christ is summed up in verse 3 in these two phrases. When he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. All of the other phrases in this section were true of the pre-incarnate Christ. But these phrases are true of God when he took human flesh and came into the world for the purpose of accomplishing the work of redemption for his people. And I say that the reason why we read Jude today, I wasn't intending actually as, as, as late as a few minutes before the service, the, the Bible reading I was intending to read was from this chapter. But right before I came down from the, the suite this morning, I was listening to a message being preached by John MacArthur, Dr. John MacArthur. And you may have a lot of things to say about Dr. MacArthur. There were a lot of things that he said and did in his early part of his ministry that he has, has since kind of gone back on and, and has realized the error of some of those things. And I know in a, in a denomination that focuses on the need for separation, uh, there are a lot of things that may be said about Dr. John MacArthur. But I think you'll find, as is true with a lot of these men that, are, that belong to the Lord, and that preached the gospel of Christ. Uh, Dr. MacArthur also, as well as every other preacher of the gospel as that they should be doing, learns as he goes on in his ministry. And he is someone that now, when you hear what he says concerning the gospel, I think you'll find that we have much more in common with men like that than we may have already in the past acknowledged. But I was listening to a message by Dr. MacArthur, and he was speaking to his students at the, the Master's Seminary. And he was speaking on Jude. And the summation of what he was saying, and at least in the first part of the message, I didn't have time to hear the end. He was summing up to these students exactly what Jude was saying in his epistle, where he said, so much of my desire in communicating with you is surrounding the common faith, the common salvation that we have. Nothing would thrill him more, he was saying, than to be able to expound the truths concerning the common salvation. But the older that he gets, the more he realizes the absolute necessity of defending and contending for the faith that was once delivered to the saints. So much so that he actually says he believes most of his ministry now in this day is fighting for the faith rather than encouraging in the faith. That is the need of the day, to defend the faith against the attacks. Some of the enemies that bring attacks are old. Evangelicalism has been fighting them for hundreds of years. Some of the attacks are new. 
that pertain to society and, and the, the effects that those ta- attacks have upon the church. But whether old or new, he was saying that the older he gets, he finds himself earnestly contending for the faith more than the positive encouragement being given to the brethren. And I don't think that's by coincidence. I don't think that's by, by chance, as it were. I think you'll find that in a day where the gospel is constantly under attack and the effects of those attacks are seen in the church, most men, if they are properly filling the pulpit, will find themselves, if they are, if they are executing a ministry and, and have an ongoing ministry that is a biblical ministry, will find themselves needing to defend the faith more than encouraging God's people in the faith. Now, granted, when you're defending the faith, that defense is an encouragement to the people of God. But MacArthur clearly was saying that the same heart that was in Jude, where he wanted to just simply talk, he would love to be able to just encourage those that were studying for the ministry and encourage them along in the faith, But he felt that his need, the greatest need, was to defend the faith. When we come to these two phrases, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high, nothing would thrill me more than to simply talk about the doctrines and encourage you in the gospel. But I am finding that the attack that's being brought against these two phrases, which is not new, is having damaging effects, especially among the young people. Some of the great attacks, some of the greatest blasphemy that's ever been levied against the work of Christ is being accepted, not only tolerated, but accepted as truth. And especially the young people. And I young people, I'm referring to anyone in their 30s and younger. Those young people do not see the need for defending the faith. They do not see the need for calling out heresies against the work of Christ. And I say that that oversight is having damning effects upon the lives of our children. There's a, a friend of mine. A friend of mine, I'm not going to say who, loves the Lord. He's one of those that I often call to, to be encouraged. And we encourage one another. Iron sharpening iron. Good brother in the Lord for many years. Goes to a Bible church, an evangelical church, even a Reformed church. They would, they would probably say they're Reformed. He would say he's Reformed for sure. But the churches that are Reformed, and evangelical are by no means Protestant in our day. It's, it's hard to say that. It's hard to imagine that there could be a generation that prides themselves in recovering reformed doctrine that was never, that was never less Protestant than the generations before. Our young people are being raised in evangelical churches and not understanding the gospel and the need to defend the faith. One of the kids of this brother, who is a brother in the Lord, 
just recently married a Roman Catholic. Against her father's wishes, not only married the Roman Catholic, but agreed that the children would be raised under the doctrine of the Roman Catholic Church. And just a few months ago, his heart was broken when he was told that they were baptizing their newborn children in the Church of Rome. There's something that has happened in evangelicalism today. We have lost the need to defend the faith that was once given and once delivered to the saints. The, 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 the passage of, of Scripture that we're considering this morning warrants the need of God's people. It, it demands the need for God's people to defend the faith that is being described in these verses. And so I say, this, this, this passage... It, the only illustration I could give was like a hurricane. Have you ever seen the, the satellite imagery of a hurricane as it approaches warm water? It, it doesn't even look like very much, right? It's just a, a storm, and then it hits the warm water. I remember Hurricane Katrina. It actually hit both sides of Florida. I don't know if you know the history of Hurricane Katrina. It actually hit the... the the east side of Florida as a Category 1 or a Category 2 hurricane. Not much, not much damage. As soon as it crossed over and hit the, the Gulf of Mexico, the whole entire storm just whoosh, blew up into a massive storm. And it hit New Orleans and the surrounding area as one of the most powerful storms in the history of the United States. That mushrooming of the storm is almost the feeling that I got considering these two small verses. These two, these two small sections of verse 3. When he had by himself purged our sins, he sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. When, when you go to approach passages like this, you think, well, I can, just, I can just approach it as I have been the other phrases, and we'll do this in a Sunday or two. The more I began to consider how massive these two phrases are, I'm not entirely convinced that we can get through this in one message. And so this morning, I want to at least begin, we'll probably have to finish it tonight. Usually I try to do these in the morning, but it would be nice to get this done this evening as well. So, so I want to consider the, the title of this message being the atonement and the session of Christ. We often hear of the intercession of Christ. Well, this is the atonement and the session of Christ who, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. So I want to begin this morning by considering the first of these two, the atoning work of Christ. And I want to make the statement as follows, the atoning work of Christ alone can expunge the sins of his people. The atoning work of Christ alone can expunge or remove the sins of of his people. Under this, I want to consider four separate things. First of all, the stain of sin, the stain of sin must be removed. There's the need, if a sinner expects to be accepted before a holy God, the stain of sin cannot be explained away, the stain of sin cannot be ignored, the stain of sin 
must be removed. It must be removed. Verse 3 tells us that when he had by himself purged our sins. The word purged in this passage is literally the Greek verb to do or to make. And then it's coupled with the word for cleansing or purifying. In Mark chapter 1 verse 44, when the leper was healed... The Lord said, See, thou say nothing to any man, but go thy way, show thyself to the priest, and offer, thy, and offer for thy cleansing those things which Moses commanded for a testimony unto them. A cleansing, a purifying. In this passage, as well as 2 Peter chapter 1, the word is translated purge. But he that lacketh these things, in 2 Peter 1 verse 9, he that lacketh these things is blind and cannot see afar off. And hath forgotten that he was purged from his old sins. By the shedding of his own blood, Christ has removed. He's purged away the mark upon our record in the sight of a holy God. Sin cannot be ignored. The atoning work of Christ alone can expunge the sins of his people. They must be removed. Hebrews chapter 9 verse 28 tells us that that very same thing. So Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many. And unto them that look for him shall he appear the second time without sins unto salvation. Bearing the sins of the many. The sins need to be removed. So the stain of sin must be removed. The second thing we see under this point is that Christ alone can perform this great work of the removing of the stain of sin. Because it doesn't just say, when he had by himself purged our sins. It says, when he had by himself. The emphasis now being upon the by himself purged our sins. So, it's one thing to say that the stain of sin must be removed. It's another thing to say how that stain should be removed or can be removed. And so I say, yes, the stain of sin must be removed, but Christ alone can perform such a work. Under this consideration, let's consider, first of all, man cannot purge his own sins. Right? We said it has to be purged. This passage tells us when he had by himself purged our sins. Man cannot purge away his own sins. This obviously strikes at the heart of man, to tell men that you cannot purge away your own sin. The pride and the arrogance of the sinner must be laid low in the dust when considering these words, when he had by himself purged our sins. There is no mention, nor could there ever be a mention, of the efforts of man in the purging of his own sins. The sacrifice of Christ alone has the power to purge sin. From the earliest days, from shortly after man's fall into sin, it was taught to our first parents that the shedding of the blood alone was provided for the remission of sins. Almost immediately after the curse was given, in the early chapters of Genesis, in Genesis chapter 3, verse 21, we read this, unto Adam also... And to his wife did the Lord God make coats of skins and clothed them. Now some may say, well, 
maybe the Lord didn't slay an animal as I'm surmising that he did. You may say, well, he just made coats of skins for them. Well, I don't think it's by coincidence then that just a few verses later in Genesis chapter 4, we read this in verse 3. And in the process of time it came to pass that Cain brought of the fruit of the ground an offering unto the Lord. And Abel, he also brought of the firstlings of the flock and of the fat thereof. And the Lord had respect unto Abel and to his offering, but unto Cain and to his offering he had not respect. Therefore, and, and Cain was very wroth and his countenance fell. I don't think it's by coincidence that the Lord makes coats of skins for Adam and Eve. And then just a few verses later, Abel, who was righteous, Abel, who was in Christ, understood from somewhere along the line that it's only through the shedding of blood that he can approach to the throne and come to the Lord in worship. I say, I I think, maybe obviously from his own discussion with Adam and Eve, but I think by example, it was told to Abel that the Lord himself clothed us with the skins after the blood was shed. From whatever animal those skins were taken, the Lord himself was the one that established that man cannot purge his own sins. Abel brought, he brought an offering. The offering that Abel brought You'll find throughout the scriptures, and especially in Leviticus and and other passages dealing with Levitical worship, the, the, the offering that Abel brought very often is a legitimate offering. There were times when the Lord commanded Israel to bring an offering of the works of their hands. But only after the atoning blood was shed, only after those Israelites offered a sacrifice of blood to remind themselves that there is no reconciliation with God without the shedding of blood. Then, once that atoning sacrifice was made, then there were offerings that were, that were given by the works of their hands and, and fruit and, and, and grain offerings and whatever it may be. But only after the atoning blood was shed, that would have reminded the Jews, that while the Lord commands the labors of our hands, it's never the labors of our hands that makes atonement. The shedding of the blood alone is that which can purge away the guilt of sin. Christ alone removes the guilty standing that a sinner has in the presence of an holy God. Christ will not share this glory with another. Luke chapter 5, verse 21, the scribes and Pharisees began to reason, saying, Who is this that speaketh blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Christ took that to himself. Psalm 130, verses 3 and 4, If thou, Lord, shouldst mark iniquities, O Lord, who should stand? But there is forgiveness with thee, that thou mayest be feared. This is, in essence, in dealing with this, consideration it's in essence what Paul says in Romans chapter 11 although he was dealing with the theme of election there's no doubt we can apply the words that he was saying in that section to what we're considering today what is 
the, the truth of election is also true of the purging away of our own sins. If our salvation from sin was something that could be done by our obedience to the law or through the efforts of the flesh, then it would be something that was owed to us by God. God would be obligated to forgive our sins. God would be obligated to give us grace. But Paul even says in Romans eleven six, 6, and if by grace, then it's no more of works. Otherwise, grace is no more grace. But if it be of works, then it is no more grace. Otherwise, work is no more work. If you've done something to merit the favor of God, and then he blesses you, that's not grace. That's debt. He owes it to you. But if God blesses you, who, who don't deserve that blessing, if the Lord pours out his mercy upon sinners that, that have no claim to the mercy of God, then truly we can say it is of grace. And when you deal with the removal of sin, and the cleansing from sin, it's clear from the scriptures man cannot purge his own sins. But then we consider secondly under this that Christ can also perform such a work. We see secondly man cannot assist in the purging of his own sins. You say, well, okay, man can't cleanse his own heart from sin, but surely being the, the pinnacle and the masterpiece of the creation of God and, and being made in the likeness of God, then surely man can at least assist God in the, the purging of his own sins. The scripture's clear that we are dead in trespasses and sins. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 1 tells us that. You hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins. You cannot assist in the removal of your own sin if you are dead in sin. Romans chapter 3 verse 23, for the wages of sin is death. That's what we are in our sin before a holy God. This puts us into direct conflict with those that would teach error in our day. And I speak specifically with the Church of Rome. The Roman Catholic system of doctrine teaches that man works in what's called a synergistic fashion in his salvation. The word simply means you to work with, right? Synergistic means to work with. And the, and the Church of Rome, in relation to salvation, in consideration of salvation, they believe that it's synergistic, that we work with God in our justification, in our sanctification. The clarity is beyond question in the Word of God concerning this issue. Jonah himself, in Jonah chapter 2, verse 9, how much clearer can it be? Salvation is of the Lord. Salvation is of the Lord. It's not synergistic. Salvation is of the Lord. The, the misinterpretation, oh, the damning misinterpretation of the revelation of God that would lead one who is dead in sin, the same one who can by no means come forth to God in faith and in repentance, and that same one who minus the intervention of the mercy of God himself must suffer the full wrath and judgment of God upon sin. I say that 
misinterpretation is the most harmful and the most damning that can be made to the soul of man. The Catholic Church believes that the will of man was not rendered dead by the fall of Adam into sin, regardless of what Romans chapter 5 says, and says it in so many different ways. When you read the, the chapter, Paul almost understands that the attack was going to come, and so he says the same thing over and over again about the fall of man in Adam into deadness and in sin. They believe that this will was not rendered dead by man's fall into sin and that the sinner, therefore, because he has a a will that's not dead, it's, it's damaged, but it's not dead, that the sinner has the ability to work with God in salvation. Dr. Cairns, in his Dictionary of Theological Terms, puts it this way, the Romish view of sacramentalism ascribes such importance to the sacraments as to make them absolutely necessary to salvation and the conveyors of divine grace, or the Latin term is opus operatum, which is the the efficacy of the action. Just the action alone in the sacrament itself, never mind the faith and the repentance that's required of a sinner for any sacrament to, to bring forth fruit or to be efficacious. The sacrament itself... That's what the word means, opus operatum. It means in itself, there's efficacy, the efficacy of the action. In other words, the benefit of a sacrament is conferred by the virtue of the work wrought. They teach that the grace in the sacrament, in the sacrament itself, which conveys to the passive recipient without the necessity of faith and repentance, is what the the Catholic Church teaches. Cardinal Bellarmine said that the administration, listen to this, the administration of a sacrament is opus operatum so that it confers grace by virtue of the sacramental act itself. No faith needed, no repentance needed, just the sacrament itself. I say man cannot assist. There is no assisting through our own works. However you want to define it, the completion of the sacrament, right? They believe in in salvation by grace, they'll tell you. This is why it's so, so hard very often for God's people to even enter into theological debates with the Church of Rome because they run you in circles. I remember hearing a, a story, our brother Stephen Lee said his, his sister was on a plane with a Roman Catholic theologian or someone that at least knew the, the doctrine. And as she was speaking with them, she said, well, the main difference between you, what you believe and what we believe, is we believe in salvation by grace. You believe in salvation by works. And the man turned, stopped her immediately and said, no, we, we entirely, absolutely believe in salvation by grace. What do you say? What do you say to someone who says that about a system of doctrine that believes that salvation is synergistic? Clearly, they don't believe in salvation by grace if they believe that salvation is synergistic. Well, what do they mean? Well, yeah, they mean that that salvation is by grace, but it's not by grace alone. What do they mean by the grace of God? Well, of course, if you press them, they'll have to confess that the grace of God in salvation is the grace that God gives upon the completion of the sacraments. Well, wait a minute. 
If I'm completing the sacraments, if I'm doing what the sacrament demands, then is it grace? Of course it's not grace. Whether you were the Jew of the Old Testament or the Jew of Paul's day, trusting in circumcision or whatever other benefits you may have seen as, as being part of the, the nation of Israel, whether you, you claimed that or claim this benefit of, of, of enjoying the, the sacrament, none of those efforts by the flesh can obtain the grace of God. Otherwise, grace is no more grace. So to say that you believe in salvation by grace, and then to say that that grace is given upon completion of the sacraments, now you may call it grace, but grace has become work. God is obligated. God must show you grace upon completion of the sacrament. That's what they teach. I say that it isn't enough to say that man can't purge away his own sins, but we also have to confess that man cannot assist in the purging away of his sins. Shortly after the Reformation, now you have to understand many of these doctrines were not etched in stone in the Catholic Church. Many of the doctrines that we would consider essential to salvation, specifically doctrines concerning justification, were never officially penned in official church documents up until the Reformation. This is why the Reformation had such an impact. Because what was being taught in the church was being exposed by these men. And, and the, the, the justification of, of a sinner by grace alone, through faith alone, in the work of, of, of Christ alone, was being recovered. The church of Rome had a problem on her hands because what was being practiced in the church was not what these, these men were preaching. We consider ourselves reformers and Protestants today. And part of the reason we do is because of the, the power of the gospel that was recovered in the days of the Reformation that not only says, can we not blot away our sins, but we cannot even assist God by the keeping of any sacraments in the removal of sin. So I say the Church of Rome had a problem on her hands. This Reformation, the recovery of the gospel was, was completely transforming the church. And so they met. They met for a council to deal with the Protestant problem. The problem of recovering Pauline doctrine concerning justification. We have to deal with this doctrine, this new doctrine that's invaded the church, which we would call the gospel. So they met. Council, Council of Trent. And there, for the first time, the Catholic Church penned put into writing the heresy concerning justification that the church is known for today. I say, some would even go so far as to say it's hard to even call the Catholic church heretical before Trent. I think you probably could say that the seeds were there for sure. Just like I think you can even say, I go, I go so far back as to say I believe the seeds of the errors on justification in the church, in the Catholic church, were visible in the days of the apostles. I personally believe Jude is talking about what later would become the Catholic church in his day. And Peter, right? Jude quotes Peter. 
He says, you've heard before of the apostles, how they said in the last days of scoffer. When you read 2 Peter chapter 3 and you read Jude, they're talking about the same people. Jude goes into more detail. And I think, and I've actually spoken on this. I don't know if I actually preached a message on it. I know I did a Bible study or something on it years ago. And maybe the next time I come, we'll, we'll consider this. Is that the three names that Jude mentions in that section as being indicative of the errors in, in the church where he says, Woe unto them, they've gone in the way of Cain and ran greedily after the error of Balaam for, for reward and perished in the gainsaying of Korah. I think you can make an argument. There's a reason why those men were focused upon. Every one of those transgressions and the guilt that those men brought upon themselves is the foundation. It's the pillars of what we would refer to today as the Church of Rome. I don't believe that the Church of Rome itself became heretical after the Council of Trent. That's where they let the world know what their position was on justification. But I believe the errors of modern-day Romanism go all the way back. They were there even in the days of the apostles. And if, if the apostles had to earnestly contend for the faith against the errors in their day, how can it not, by necessity, be the main, one of the main focuses of a man of God in our day today, where not only was the error present, but now we've got 2,000 years of, of fermenting and corruption added to the very same system that the apostles fought in their day. But I say officially, on paper, the Church of Rome put down their doctrine concerning the free will of man and justification in the Council of Trent. They released this, this, the, the findings of this council and, and their doctrinal statements are summed up in what we call the canons, Right? The, the statements that the church released to the world. It was their official verdict, as it were, on the recovery of, of the Pauline gospel of justification by faith alone, through grace alone, in the work of Christ alone. Right? This is what they said. And I encourage you sometime to just do a, do a search. The canons of the Council of Trent. You'll read them all. In canon 4... The Church of Rome says this, If anyone says that man's free will moved and aroused by God by assenting to God's call and action in no way cooperates toward disposing and preparing itself to obtain the grace of justification, that it cannot refuse its assent if it wishes, but that as something inanimate it does nothing whatever and is merely passive, let him be anathema. The Church of Rome believes that your will, when exerted, assists God in justification. If you deny that, you're going to hell. That's what they said. Canon 7. If anyone says that all works done before justification, in whatever manner they may be done, are truly sins, or merit the hatred of God, that the more earnestly one strives to dispose himself for grace, the more grievously he sins, let him be anathema. Listen to what they said. The more one earnestly strives to depose, dispose himself for grace. What does that even mean? The harder you try to get grace from God, 
If you deny that, if you say that regardless of how hard we try, being dead in sins merits us nothing in the the face of God, in the presence of God, you're going to hell. You're going to hell. They actually believe before you're justified, you can strive to obtain the grace necessary to salvation. They didn't get that... They didn't get that from Paul. They didn't get that out of the scriptures. I remember the debate Dr. Cairns had this one time. It was, it's, it, the, I've never seen it, but the line is so, so awesome, right? So this guy he was debate, debating made some her- heretical statement. And Dr. Cairns says, well, I don't know where you got that. And he said, well, I got it out of the Bible. And Cairns said, well, you must have got it out of the Bible because it ain't in the Bible. It's a great it's a great way to show the errors of those who arrive at conclusions that are not supported by the scriptures. If anyone says all the works done before justification are sins and merit the hatred of God, and that the more you strive to receive that, that saving grace from God, the more you sin, let him be anathema. If you believe that, if you believe what Paul says, that you're dead in sin. If you believe what Paul says, that the first inkling of life that a soul experiences is when you're quickened by the Spirit of God. And then the first action of a quickened heart is to come to Christ in faith and repentance. And upon the merits of Christ, you're justified. If you believe that, you're going to hell. Dr. Cairns also said, Protestants believe that the observance of baptism and the Lord's Supper in dealing with sacramentalism is necessary in the sense that it's obligatory because it's commanded in Scripture. Right? We believe that the sacraments are necessary. There's a reason why Christ instituted the sacraments. He gave them to us. The fact that He has given them to us and that they're taught in Scripture, we view that as obligatory. Right? Rome views the sacraments as absolutely necessary to salvation. A view that denies the the spiritual character of the gospel dispensation and that equally denies the statements of scripture regarding true faith being the only instrument for the reception of salvation. Big difference. We teach their sacraments. Those sacraments are not necessary for salvation. What is required of a sinner in order for them to be saved? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. That's it. That's it. No work of mine. No no meriting of the favor of God through the sacrament is ever taught in the scriptures. The merit of of the, the favor of God is only one to the sinner based upon the, the, the merits of Jesus Christ. The moment a sinner understands his need as a sinner before a holy God and he understands that Christ came into the world not only to make a sacrifice for sin but also to to merit before God all of the the righteousness that a sinner needs. And And that sinner then comes on the basis of the merits of Christ and trusts in the work of Christ for salvation. That soul is saved. The foundation of his salvation is not his coming. 
the foundation of his, of his salvation is not his belief. The foundation of our salvation this morning is on the merits of Jesus Christ and the merits of Christ alone. To, to, to dare say that a soul can, can be made alive by the efforts before justification is a complete twisting of the scripture. What does the scripture say concerning Abraham? The father of the faith. Abraham believed God. And it was imputed to him. It was counted to him for righteousness. It doesn't say that Abraham was righteous and that now he's, he's the friend of God. The only righteousness that is ever spoken of concerning our father Abraham came the moment he believed. He believed the promise. He believed the gospel. Same thing about David. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord imputeth not sin. These great, these great doctrines of justification. Yes, it's true of Abraham. Yes, it's true of David. Go to the end of Romans 4. It wasn't just written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him. But for us also, to whom it shall be imputed if we believe on him that raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was delivered for our offenses and raised again because of our justification. The very same method, if you will, of salvation that was true of Abraham and was true of David is true of all of those who come to God by faith in Jesus Christ. You can't blot out your own sin. Praise the Lord, you cannot even assist in your salvation, in the, in the removal of sin. The third thing I want to say, and with this we'll, we'll close. Sin, in its entirety was purged by Christ. Look at our text. When he had by himself purged our sins. doesn't say purged some of our sins. doesn't say purged the lesser of our sins, all those venial sins. Right? That's what I was taught growing up in the Catholic Church. Oh, well, there's two, there's two kinds of sins. But you didn't know that, right? You read through the Bible, you didn't know there's two kinds of sins. There's two kinds of sins. There's the mortal sins, they're the bad sins. And then there's venial sins. Nah, kind of look over those. They, they, they almost don't even need to be purged. It's only the mortal sins that will keep you out of heaven. The venial sins, I guess just because you were baptized and you're part of the church, those venial sins, they just kind of get overlooked, right? No, that's not what the scripture says. Sin is any lack of conformity to or transgression of the law of God. Any transgression of the law of God. But this passage tells me, when he had by himself purged our sins, all of our sins, sin in its entirety was purged by the work of Christ. Canon 9 of the Council of Trent says this, if anyone says that a sinner is justified by faith alone, meaning that nothing else is required to cooperate in order to obtain the grace of justification. I don't even wait. The language is so bizarre. If anything else is... Re if, if, if a sinner believes that he's only justified by faith, far be it from me to believe that. Abraham believed God who was imputed to him for righteousness. Far be it from me to believe that a sinner is justified by faith alone. If you believe that, 
meaning that nothing else is required to cooperate in order to to obtain the grace of justification, and that it is not in any way necessary that he be prepared and disposed by the action of his own will. Let him go to hell. Let him be anathema. Canon 11. If anyone says that men are justified either by the sole imputation of the justice of Christ or by the sole remission of sins to the exclusion of the grace and the charity which is poured forth in their hearts by the Holy Spirit and remains in them, or also that the grace by which we are justified is only the good will of God, let him go to hell. The church of Rome that you view today has a different face that they want to show. This is what they believe. If you believe what the scripture says concerning Abraham and David, that they believed in the Lord and that the just shall live by faith. If you believe that, you're going to hell. Canon 12, if anyone says that justifying faith is nothing else than confidence in divine mercy or trust in divine mercy, which remits sins for Christ's sake. I can't believe these are the most glorious doctrines of the gospel. And the church of Rome is saying, if you believe this, you're going to hell. Listen to it. If anyone says that justifying faith is nothing else than confidence in divine mercy, which remits sins for Christ's sake, or that it is this confidence alone that justifies us, let him be anathema. If you're here this morning... And your hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. The church of Rome places upon your head their anathema. Their anathema. And I have to believe, I have to believe that part of the reason why we have lost a generation of young people in the church today is because these truths have been neglected And the errors and the attacks that have come against the church through the church of Rome have been ignored. To the point that you can have someone raised in a reformed church and have no idea that this is the view of the Catholic church. None. None. And even churches today that are proud of the fact that they're reformed Don't take every opportunity around Reformation Day, October 31st, right? When Luther supposedly nailed the theses to the door of the church church door in Wittenberg. It's debated whether he actually did that. I just heard that a couple years ago and um, makes for good storytelling. But we don't really need to know it was actually nailed to the church door. We saw the effect of the the doctrine, right? That, that, That you can be raised in a church... And, and hear all of these things, and yet, and, and profess faith. And when, you, when it comes time to be married, you not only see nothing wrong with marrying a Catholic, but you see nothing wrong with baptizing your kids as Roman Catholic. We've lost a generation. And the moment you think that the free Presbyterian Church of North America is above this, you're deceived. You are deceived. Because there is a natural propensity in the heart of everyone that stands behind this desk to not want to defend the faith that has been given to us. To earnestly contend for the faith once 
delivered to the saints. It, it should never be. It should never be that our children become Catholic. It should never be. Literally, in my case, it would be over my dead body. Not to say that my children wouldn't or couldn't do that if they're not saved. But it would be, they would have to march over my dead body if that would be said of them. They will be warned of the attack against the gospel. Oh, it's Christianized. Oh, it sounds good. You walk into a Catholic church, it looks like a holy place. It smells like a holy place. I got into a, a, a debate, a big issue before with one of our ministers. And I said to him, it was around the Catholic church, and I said to him, do you have any idea what it means when I tell you I know what the Church of Rome smells like? I know what it smells like. This guy was raised in Baptist background. He's Reformed now, but I know what it smells like. You can blindfold me, walk me into a room, and I can tell you I'm in a Catholic church. Why? Because it smells like a holy place. You look up and you see the stained glass windows and the statues. It looks like a holy place. If God was ever going to dwell among men, surely it would be in the church of Rome. Surely. Look at the priest with all of his garbs. Oh, I tell you, the, the, the Reformation can never, ever be lost. We have to earnestly contend for the faith that's once been delivered to the saints. Canon 13, if anyone says that in order to obtain the remission of sins, it is necessary for every man to believe with certainty and without any hesitation arising from his own weakness and indisposition that his sins are forgiven him. Let him be anathema. If anyone dares say that they have the confidence that they're redeemed because of the work of Christ, you're going to hell. That's what we say. That's what they're saying. Canon 14. If anyone says that man is absolved from his sins and justified because he firmly believes that he is absolved and justified, or that no one is truly justified except him who believes himself to be justified, and that by this faith alone absolution and justification are affected, let him be anathema. How many times do they need to say it? If you reject justification by faith alone, you're going to hell. Praise the Lord, there isn't just one passage in the scripture that sets before men the need to come to Christ by faith and faith alone. You can go into the Old Testament. This is one of the glories of the types. Even in typical fashion, in the Old Testament types, it's clearly set forth. Believe God and it's imputed to you for righteousness. What saith the scripture? For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation, a removal of wrath through faith in His blood. How is it that, that God's not angry with you anymore? It's by faith in the blood of Christ. That's what the passage says right there. 
to declare His righteousness for the remission of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God, to declare, I say at this time, His righteousness, that He might be just and the justifier of Him which believeth in Jesus. God is just not because of what I've done. God is just not because I keep the sacraments. God is just in justifying me in his sight because I've believed on Christ. That's what the passage says. Therefore, actually I'll go back, back up a little bit. Where is boasting then? It is excluded by what law? Of works? Nay, but by the law of faith. Therefore, we conclude that a man is justified by faith without the deeds of the law, without the deeds of the church, without the sacraments. That's what Paul's saying. Without circumcision. Insert whatever you want in there. Man is justified before God without the deeds of his own hands. That's what he's saying. By faith alone. Clear as can be. A propitiation, a removal of wrath. This is what we're talking about when we're talking about God removing the blot of sin. The hymn, Jesus paid it all, sums it up. Sums it up. I hear the Savior say, thy strength indeed is small. Child of weakness, watch and pray. Find in me thine all in all. Lord, now indeed I find thy power and thine alone can change the leper's spots and melt the heart of stone. For nothing good have I, whereby thy grace to claim. I'll wash my garments white in the blood of Calvary's lamb. And when before the throne I stand in him complete, Jesus died my soul to save, my lips shall still repeat. Where's baptism? Where's the sacraments? It's not there. Just like if a Jew would say, where's circumcision? Where's Moses? It's not there. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. Oh, I trust that some of these things that we're continuing or consider, considering about the work of Christ, the atoning work of Christ alone is that which removes the sins of his people. I, 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 I hope that you get hold of it and see the need for earnestly contending for the faith that was once delivered to the saints. This is a glorious heritage. You understand, like, the heritage, the, the, the body into which we've been called is the greatest body of men and women that has ever been assembled in the presence of God. We are the saints. And along with that comes a theology, comes a, a statement of doctrine concerning salvation. It's the most important message that we bring to a nation and to a people that are dead in sin. Go through the scripture and come up with all the other doctrines that may be taught in the scripture. Paul, Peter, James, John preached the gospel. That gospel, earnestly contending for the faith. It's the most important thing that we have given to us as a heritage by the church. The preaching of Christ and Him crucified.
The atoning work of Christ alone can expunge the sins of his people. We're going to continue tonight by considering that the work that was done was done at the exact moment in time where it says when he had by himself purged your sin. It was all part of the plan and purpose of God. And then the atonement is efficacious only for the elect. Christ didn't die for everyone. When Christ shed his blood, it wasn't for everyone in mind. Because the passage says when he had by himself purged our sins. The sins of certain people, the hour here, are removed. It wasn't that we're told here that when he had by himself made it possible to purge away the sins, if you would believe. It says something definitive happened. When he had by himself purged our sins. Who in the world is the hour? I want to be in that group. There's not another group of people on the face of the earth that I want to be part of than the hour of verse 3. Yes, Christ purged sin. He came into the world to do that. But it's only the sins that are ours. Who are the hours? I want to be part of that group. We'll consider that tonight as well. Just understand. Understand the battle. Understanding the battle is half of the battle itself. Understanding the attacks against the gospel and the way in which those that bring the attacks deceive and corrupt and purposely twist so that they can steal our children. So that our children say, well, he says he loves Jesus. And that's enough for me. It doesn't matter if some water is being poured on the head of my kid. What in the world? What are we doing? What are we doing today in the Christian church? We're losing, we're losing an entire generation. Why? Because we're not earnestly contending for the faith that's once been delivered to the saints. When he had by himself purged our sins. Trust the Lord will take these thoughts and write them upon our hearts for his name's sake. Let's bow in a word of prayer. Our Father... We are thankful this morning for the mercy and for the grace of God seen in the gospel. We're thankful, Lord, for quickening us that we have come to Christ by faith and in repentance. And on that basis, all of the merits of thy Son are put to our account. All of his obedience, all of his pleasing thee, Yea, the words spoken from heaven can be spoken of us. That this is our, this is my beloved son. I'm in union with him. If Christ was accepted by virtue of his obedience, then truly that same acceptance can be said of me. Oh, hallelujah. Hallelujah for the gospel. Praise the Lord that we're saved this morning. Oh, Father, remember our children. Lord, remember the next generation. Have mercy upon them. Show them their need for Christ. Show them their need to come to Christ and trust in the merits of the Son of God who loved them and gave himself for them. Oh, Father, write thy word upon our hearts, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to end our service by standing and singing hymn number 525. 525, trust and obey. Let's stand together as we sing.